So Paul and Barnabas, after their first missionary journey, they came back to the church that sent them out, the church in Jerusalem. And we find in Acts 15 that they reported to the church, to the elders in the church, everything that God had been doing through them and in the region where they were at. And so that is the basis of why we come back occasionally is to reconnect those relationships that Gunnar was talking about and to share with what God is doing and hopefully to encourage you, all of our believers, our support team here in the U.S. um, with reports and seeing how God is not um, inactive, but God is very active in the world. And not only is he working here in Valley Center, but he's also working in Kenya and East Africa. So I was here, I think, three weeks ago, and I shared very briefly, um, and I promised a picture of Gunner, and so I am here to deliver on that promise. Um, When I first knew Gunner, he was still active duty in the Navy, and I have some very fond memories of Gunner. Here, this is Gunner at work in 2004, and it looks like to me like he's really working hard. It He's having a hard time spraying down those poor bud students with water. Um, But God has been at work in Gunner's life. And so we have the bud students there. And and I was kind of thinking when Gunner Gunner got up to do the announcements, and he was standing up here for, I don't know, like a minute, and trying to get people to quiet down and come back into order. And that would not have been a problem in 2004 with Gunner's uh, participants. The room would have been silent instantly because otherwise you get this sort of treatment. So in 2011, we see that God is working in Gunner's life and Gunner is moving down a different path. And uh, we can applaud him. He's preaching and using the Bible. You can see the scripture references there. Then last year in 2016... Gunner came to Kenya to visit me, and he brought two young men with him. And the report I heard is John and Daniel were scared to travel to Africa, all the way to Africa by themselves. Um, And so Gunner had to kind of go and hold their hands. At least that's what Gunner told me. I don't know if that's true, John. Um, But since then, I hear that a couple women from the church have gone to like the Philippines and Japan by themselves. They didn't need Gunner. But Anyways, Gunner, he arrives, and this is in my, my avionics shop in the hangar, and I asked Gunner if he wanted to help out and do some work, and Gunner's like, Joe, that's way too complicated. I'll just mess it up. I'm just going to hang out here and take a nap. He, I wish I had a picture of him sleeping because he was sleeping, but I missed the opportunity. Um, here he's just messing around with his phone. But Gunner had a disciple who learned from Gunner's example. Um, And so while Gunner and John are doing this, um, Daniel was helping me out working on the airplanes. And so I put Daniel to good use and good work. But now they say a picture is worth a thousand words. So let me give the story behind the picture that it doesn't show. Gunner turned down the work that I offered him. John did not turn down, he didn't decline, and he did a lot of work, uh, tedious stuff that I didn't want to do, I and mean, that's why I pawned it off onto John. Um, and so it's totally understandable that in the afternoon, after eating some lunch, flying halfway around the world, different time zone, doing some very tedious work, that 
you would find them sleeping on the floor. So thank you, John, for being a good uh, participant and coming out and helping. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I want to talk to you this morning about faithfulness and living in a culture that's different from the culture that I grew up in. I often find that I have to be very clear about the words that I'm using and the the words that I'm putting together to communicate my point. And I think we we even in my own culture I find that defining the terms that we're using helps everybody to understand is like, well, what are we actually talking about? So, I want to talk about faithfulness, but what does it mean to be faithful? What what does faithfulness mean? What does faith mean? So, and we're going to look at it in the New Testament context because that's where we're reading. So in the New Testament, the word faith is translated from the Greek word pistis. Pistis is a noun, and if we look in uh, an English dictionary, we come up with a definition of conviction of the truth of anything or belief. So in the New Testament context, it would be a conviction or a belief respecting man's relationship to God and divine things. It also relates to fidelity. And then in addition to the noun pistis, we have a word that's related, very similar, and that's pisteu. And this is a verb. It's derived from the, same, the noun pistis. And the, if we look at the dictionary, we come up with a definition to think to be true, to be persuaded of, to credit, to place confidence in. So my father-in-law was a church planner in Brazil for 35 years. He died in May, this May. And he had in a, an example, an illustration that he liked to use in the churches in Brazil to demonstrate faith. And he would put a chair or a stool up on the stage and he would say, this looks like a great stool. It looks sturdy, it has four legs, has a, a seat that's not broken, um, all of our scientific reasoning and mechanics going into building this chair say that I should be able to trust this chair to hold me. I should have faith in this chair to hold me, but I can't prove to all of you that I believe this chair will hold me unless I demonstrate it. So if I sit on this chair... I've now demonstrated that I have faith in the ability of this chair to hold me. So my action, my sitting on the chair is not my faith. My sitting on the chair is an action which proves or demonstrates my faith in that chair. So if I say that someone is faithful in their attendance coming to church every Sunday, their faith isn't they're coming to church. Their coming to church is a demonstration that they believe coming to church is important and a belief in their life, and they prove that faith by coming to church faithfully every Sunday. So faithfulness describes an aspect, a characteristic, or an action of a person which has the root meaning in faith or believe. Our two Greek words would be pistis or pisteu. So with that in mind, with that definition of faithfulness, look at me to Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm just going to go through two verses here. 
Verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So right away, the very first word is therefore. So we have to find out what the context of these verses are. We can't understand what the writer is trying to tell us if we don't understand the context of where he's coming from. Why are these verses there? Um, Growing up, my mom used to always tell me, Joe, if you see a therefore in the scripture, you have to go back and find out what that verse is there for. So turn back with me just one chapter, and we're going to summarize chapter 11 briefly for you. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So I gave you an English definition for faith, and now here's the biblical definition, the Holy Spirit's definition of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. So the evidence is portrayed in our lives, in our actions, in our characteristics. But the faith is something that's not seen. It's hidden. It's a belief. It's something that we can't see. And then keep reading. Verse 2. For by it, talking about faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. That's a good report. And then verse 3, the author gives an example. So first he defines it in verse 1, and then in verse 3 he gives an example of what he means. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So I consider myself pretty young, Gunner's getting a little bit older, um, but And then there's others in the congregation that are younger, older. But by a show of hands, how many of us here this morning were also at the creation of the world? No one. How many people, human beings, observed the creation of the world as recorded in Genesis 1, chapters 1 and chapters 2? No people observe those first days. We have people on the sixth day of creation, but not on the first five days of creation. There was no people. And so we take it by faith that what God told us is what happened. So we weren't there to observe it. We can't prove it. But by believing what God told us, it shows that we have faith in what God has said. That's the, that's the example that the author of Hebrews gives as an example of faith. And then, to summarize quickly, the author goes through and he starts listing Old Testament patriarchs, people that proved that they had faith. And we have Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Amram, and Jochebed. Those were the parents of Moses. We have Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. And then, In verse 32, the author says, if I continue listing all of the faithful Old Testament patriarchs, I'm going to run out of time. I will never be able to write them all down. So he starts summarizing a little bit. He says the prophets. And then he just says there's many others. And he describes the way that they lived and the way that they died. They were martyrs for their faith. The way they lived their lives proved their belief in something. And if you look at... Chapter 11, verse 39. 
says, all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. So what was the promise? What was the object of their faith? What did the actions of their lives prove that they believed? The object of their faith was Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, who was going to come and save His people from His sins. But none of those people that we just read through, none of those people on the list, saw Christ during their lifetime. So they proved by their actions that they had faith in Christ, that they had faith in the promised Messiah, that they believed that the Word of God was true, that God's promise was true, but they didn't see it, they didn't receive that in their lifetime. They never... uh, realized their faith in their lifetime, but they still lived, proved by the way they lived, that they believed it was true. And so that's the setting that we find ourselves in Hebrews 12, verse 1. And the the author kind of shifts here, and he's writing to Hebrew Christians. And he shifts to a language that the Hebrew Christians can understand. And we find a metaphor here in chapter 1 where he's saying... You as believers are running in a race, and you have spectators watching you run the race. Well, none of us here are physically running a race, and none of us are physically in an amphitheater, but that's the imagery, that's the metaphor that the author is using to get across his point. And so, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. This great cloud of witnesses are the Old Testament patriarchs, the ones who went before us, who demonstrated, who proved by the way that they lived that they were faithful. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Gunnar's a hockey fan. And I hesitate to use the word fan. Um, I think Anna might use something a little stronger, fanatic, um, addict. Uh, I'm going to leave that up to Anna. You can ask her about it after the service. But Gunnar really likes hockey and He's been drawn back into it by someone who might go to this church. Um, I'm, I'm going to let you speculate on that. But So in being here in San Diego in the past six weeks, I've gone to three hockey games with Gunnar. Thank you, Gunnar. It's been a great time. I've really enjoyed it. But this Friday night, we were at a hockey game. And Gunnar didn't go to the hockey game to talk to me and to spend time with me. He went to the hockey game to watch the hockey players play. Let's be honest. And it was a lot of fun, and I enjoyed watching the hockey players play. But Gunner's attention, his focus, was on the game. And that's the same attention and focus that these spectators have on our lives. And I think Gunner mentioned when he went through this passage that they're not actually watching us in the physical sense where they can see us. It's, remember, it's a metaphor. It's a, it's a word picture to help clarify the meaning. But they're intently interested, in the same way that Gunner's intently interested in hockey, they're intently interested in how we're living our lives. So that's the, the setting that we find ourselves in in Hebrews 12. And then the method is another... Um, word picture. And it says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So to run the race is an idiom. And I think as Christians, we probably understand it. The 
to walk your life. We find in Ephesians 4, therefore walk worthy of the calling. Where have you been called? Well, he's not the Paul isn't talking about actually walking. He's talking about living your life in a certain manner. And we find this idiom all throughout Scripture. And we find lots of idioms, word pictures that say one thing but actually mean something else. And we use them all the time. How many people have used the expression, it's raining cats and dogs? Well, we're in Southern California. It never rains cats and dogs here, really. But we understand that if we say it's raining cats and dogs, it's not actually pets aren't falling out of the sky. It's just raining heavily. So these are idioms, words that we put together to help convey a meaning, something that the readers of this epistle would be familiar with. So we're to run this race since we're surrounded by these witnesses, we're to run this way, race well. We're to compete well. We're actually supposed to be running this way, race to win. And what are the things, the qualifications that the author of Hebrews says that we need to do to win? We need to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. So two things. I'm going to start with the sin first because that's easy for us to understand. We all know that we shouldn't have, as believers, as Christians, we shouldn't have sin in our lives. Sin uh, destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship one with another. We can easily see how sin would prevent us from running this race, from winning this race, if I go back to the analogy, to the metaphor. But what about this other item, these weights? And remember, he's talking about a sports setting. And so we're all, we understand that athletes, they put on weights. They go in the gym, they lift weights. They, when they're going to go run, they put weights on their ankles so that they can train, so they can get better. But when it actually comes time to run the race, they don't carry those weights with them. They leave those, leave those weights aside. And so what weights are in your life that are preventing you from running your spiritual life, running your spiritual race to the best of your ability? Items that aren't sin but are distracting you maybe from the goal. It's interesting that um, you guys have been studying through Hebrews and we find ourselves circling back and looking at Hebrews. I was at a church a couple weeks ago and the, we had, there was a guest speaker and he spoke on Hebrews 12. And the Sunday before I got there, I was like, oh great, now i got to go listen to his sermon to find out what he said, make sure I'm not covering the same thing, make sure I'm not contradicting him. Uh, um, anyways, but... He focused on the sin that ensnares us. And in looking at that, he said, the secret to resisting temptation, the key to victory over sin, and thus persevering and following Jesus, is to believe that Jesus is better. In other words, Jesus is the better choice. When we sin, we make a choice. Ephesians, or Romans 5 says that we've been set free from sin. We're no longer a slave to sin. So if we're no longer a slave, then we have a choice. So we can choose to sin or not to choose. And Mark Foreman is saying Jesus is the better choice. Jesus is better than sin. So we might get some temporary gratification from choosing sin at that moment. But we know for our life, for running our race, Jesus is the better choice than the sin. Final point here in verse 1 is it says, Run with endurance the race that is set before us. So by a show of hands... How many of us here this morning chose the family that we would be born into? You chose your parents. You said, that family is awesome. I want to be born into that family. They have got it going on. 
They have a beach house and um, a vacation house in Europe, and that's where I want to be born. By show of hands, anyone do that? No, we all chuckle. It's absurd. And it's the same way with our spiritual life. We don't choose the race that set the race that we're running. We run the race that God has given us. We run the life that God's given us, and we run it how? How are we to run this race? What's the object of our race? Notice that the spectators, this cloud of witnesses that's watching us, they were commended for their faithfulness, but they didn't receive that which they had faith in, the object of their faith during their lifetime. They didn't receive Christ. The Messiah didn't come during their lifetime. The Messiah did come. We know he came looking back. He came, but they didn't see it in their lifetime. The object of our faith is Christ. So just like the Old Testament saints were looking unto the Messiah to save them, Christ is the object of our faith. And it says in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That's our word pistis. And I want to come back to the sports analogy on Last night's game between the San Diego Gulls and Ontario Reign, at the end of the third period, the score was tied. And they went into an overtime, no one scored, and then they had shootouts. And in shootouts, you have the the goalkeeper and you have one player, and he starts with the puck at the halfway point, and he dribbles down closer and closer to the goal, and then suddenly he shoots and tries to get the puck into the net. During that time, the goalie's attention is solely focused on the player and the puck so he can try and stop it, prevent it from entering. It happens just like that, and it's over. If he looks to the stands, if he turns aside, then his opportunity to stop that puck just like that is gone. And that's what we find here, the intensity that we find the the author of Hebrews is telling these Hebrew Christians is we need to be focused solely on Christ. We shouldn't be looking to the right. We shouldn't be looking to the left. We need to be focused completely on Christ while we're running this race. And other than Christ being the object of our faith, why are we looking at Christ? Christ is the example. Christ showed us how to live our lives. And there's lots of other verses, but just in this verse, We can see that Christ was joyful, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So how many have heard the expression, those grumpy Christians, those cranky Christians, you fill in the word that doesn't have to do with joy. And Christianity has received some negative publicity, some negative light, because we're not full of joy. We're not bubbling over with the hope that's in us. We should be... enthusiastic, ecstatic, because we know that Christ lives and he died for us and he paid a debt that we could never pay and we're going to live with him in eternity. Because of that, we should be enthusiastic. We should be living our lives with joy the same way Christ did. What's the second example that Christ showed us? Endured the cross. We know when Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the crucifixion, we know he prayed, Lord, if this cup can pass by me, let it pass. But not my will be done, Lord. Your will be done. You be glorified in my life, however you see fit. 
So with endurance, regardless of the trials and tribulations that come, we're to endure in our life, in our spiritual walk that Christ has placed before us. And then it says despising the shame. And we can't understand the shame that's associated with crucifixion in this day and age. We can't understand that being hung on a tree was the most shameful way that a Jew, a Hebrew, could die. And there's the culture and the context of not just crucifixion, but being hung on a tree that we don't understand. But Christ was willing to endure that for us. Why? Because He loved us. He proved His love by, for us by going to the cross. He wasn't concerned about the shame. He was concerned about His love for us. So how many of us are showing that same love to our spouses, to our children? It's probably a little bit easier with those that we know. But what about our coworkers? What about those crazy people on the freeway who cut us off and we just want to raise one finger and shake it out the window? You all know what I'm talking about. And then finally, Christ's fourth example was perseverance. It says, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the act of sitting down signifies that the work was completed. It was finished. So Christ didn't give up halfway through. He persevered until it was done. So just as the Old Testament saints were waiting for Christ's first coming, we have to remain faithful for His second coming. We have to be faithful in the race that God has given us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But verse 10 continues, For we are His workmanship, Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that we should walk in them. So God's prepared good works for us. This is post-salvation. We already know, verses 2, 8, and 9, that our salvation is sure because of faith in Jesus Christ. But as a result of that faith in Christ, He has good works that He wants us to do. So what are the good works that God has prepared for each one of us? What are the good works that God wants us to do as we're running this race? That we're laying aside the weights and the sin that easily beset us and slow us down. And sometimes we don't know. Sometimes there's doubt, there's uncertainty. And this message comes up... um, out of study in my own life. And being in Kenya, I've taken on new responsibilities and a lot of administrative functions. And I put in some long hours and I've come home at night and I've told Esther, I was like, Esther, I don't know why I'm there at the hangar. I don't, I don't see the purpose. I don't see the eternal significance in what I'm doing and what our stated objective is of trying to reach others for Christ. And so I'm, I had these questions. It's like, Lord, why do you have me here at the hangar? And I talked to people and I prayed and I studied God's Word. And I don't know, I don't have the answer yet. But I know for certain after this examination and talking to people and praying that God wants me in Nairobi, Kenya working with Amer. And so I have to remain faithful to that calling, to the work that He's prepared for me there at Amer. I want to tell you a story about a man named Joe Nash. Um, his parents were probably some of the last to travel across the United States in a covered wagon. They left upstate New York 
1914, and they drove south into Alabama. Then they took the southern route across Texas, and they ended up in New Mexico, where Joe Nash was born in 1914. They spent about two years in New Mexico. Um, They had some problems with the animals and um, just uncertainty as to whether they should continue. After two years in New Mexico, they finally made it into Southern California. Um, Joe Nash, after arriving in California, he gave his life to Christ about the age of five. And then when he was in seventh grade, he found himself uh, getting in trouble. He had sticky fingers. There was a shop in particular. He would go in and steal candy bars. And then um, he relates a story where he and his brother would go and sell eggs to the neighborhood. And he would have a carton of eggs and he would knock on the door. And the lady at home would come and open the door and they would show him a carton of eggs and they would negotiate on a price. And once they agreed, she would go and she would get the money and he would swap the carton of nice eggs and he would substitute it with a carton filled with rocks about the same weight. And he would give the lady the carton of rocks, and then he would run away. So that was seventh grade. And then God convicted him of his sin, and he decided that if I gave my life to Christ, this is not the way I should be living. And he felt God pulling on his heart and telling him that he wanted him to be a missionary. So he went to Biola University in Los Angeles and uh, went to SIL, Summer Institute for Linguistics. You might know it now as Wycliffe. It's out of SIL. Um, they've become a full-fledged mission board. Graduated from that. And then in 1940, 1941, he got on a boat um, from New York City. And there was two boats. There was one that, this is, World War II is happening. It hasn't affected the U.S. yet. There was two boats that left New York, and they sailed south into off of the coast of South America. And the sister boat went, that was about two weeks ahead of them, went ahead and they heard reports that it had been sunk because of the war. And there was a bunch of missionaries on this boat that Joe Nash was on. And a lot of them said, this life isn't for us. And they got on another boat and they went back to New York. But Joe Nash and a bunch of his colleagues that were with SIM, um, Sudan Interior Mission at the time, they said, we're going to face difficulties, danger when we get to Africa, so we're not turning back now. They made it to the west coast of Africa. He spent four years in Nigeria learning the language. His, finally, after the war ended, his fiance came across from the United States. They were married in Africa. They spent some time in the 40s working in Nigeria. And then they returned home on a home assignment to kind of share the work that God was doing. On their second term, They flew to Europe, and then they flew to Khartoum and South Sudan. They spent the rest of their career in working in South Sudan, or not South Sudan, in the Sudan, sorry. Um, And then he returned to the United States after 35 years in Africa, went to Oregon, became the principal of a Christian school, and then he finally died in 2005. And before he died, he had doubts. And he had misgivings and questions, and he was looking back over his life. He said, Lord, did I waste the life that you gave me? In 35 years, he could count on one hand the number of converts that he knew for certain had come to Christ as a result of his ministry. And he had regrets and questions. 
And he died in 2005 without any of those regrets, regrets or questions answered. In 2011, South Sudan became the newest country in the world. Sudan, the government in Sudan is controlled. It's predominantly Muslim. It's 99% Muslim. And there was people in the southern part of the country that weren't Muslim. And so, by definition, the media labeled them as Christians. Not Christians, but that's the, the world we live in. If you're not Muslim, then you have, you have to label everything. And so there was civil war. Then finally in 2011, a peace treaty was signed and South Sudan became the newest country. But the north, North Sudan, the Sudan as it's called today, there was still people on their southern border who weren't Muslim and they didn't like them. And so they were bombing them. They were bombing their own countrymen. And so people were fleeing from the south of Sudan into this new country. And they got as far south as they could. They crossed the border into South Sudan and they ran into a swamp and they couldn't travel any farther south through this swamp. They couldn't go back north because of the persecution from their government. And so they just stopped where they were and there was many refugee camps along the South Sudan-Sudan border. One of those was called is called Doro. It's still there today. And in 2012, during the the height of the refugee camp, there was 120,000 refugees in Doro. The United Nations was flying in food. Amer participated in getting food to some of these refugee camps during the rainy season. We couldn't get a truck in, so we are throwing food out the side of the airplane. But in 2012, SIM, the same mission that Joe Nash was with, sent 24 evangelists from Ethiopia, so African evangelists, to these refugee camps. And they brought back, the evangelists brought back two reports. And the first was of a chief that said, if you were in my country, in my village, in my place, then I would kill you for telling my people about Jesus. But since we're not in my country, we're not in my village, I can't stop you from telling my people about Jesus. And so people came to Christ as a result of the evangelist witness for Christ. The other report was from a tribe, a people group known as the Burun. And the elders, the elderly, the older generation in that tribe, they said, when we were young, a white missionary came and told us about Jesus. We weren't ready to hear about Jesus when we were young. We're ready to hear about Jesus now. Tell us more about this Jesus. As a result of these Ethiopian evangelists, thousands of the Burun people came to Christ. But what you don't know is that Joseph Nash worked primarily with the Burun people when he was there in Sudan. And he didn't see any of this because he died in 2005. But seven years later, in 2012, thousands of people are coming to Christ because of Joseph Nash's faithful testimony and witness of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is settling an argument in the church in Corinth. He said, I watered, or I planted, Apollos watered, but Christ brought the increase. The same thing happened with the Brun people. Joe Nash planted. The Ethiopian evangelists, they watered. 
And God brought the increase, and thousands were saved because of the faithful witness of some men of God. Joseph Nash was my grandfather. He left a legacy that I'm trying to live up to. In Hebrews 12, we have the testimony of Scripture, of the Old Testament patriarchs who left a legacy for us to live up to. Are you going to be faithful to the race that God has put before you? Are you going to live faithfully? Are you going to win the race that God has provided? Esther and I were married in 2003. We have four kids. Um, We're both missionary kids from, I grew up in Kenya, Esther grew up in Brazil. Esther was a college student at Pensacola Christian College where she got her nursing degree. That's where we met. She was my sister's roommate in college. I was in the Navy at the time. Uh, She moved out here while still in the Navy. And then I completed a degree and then went to Southern California Seminary here in the Navy. And then we decided that God was calling us back to the mission field. We have four kids. Benjamin is our oldest. He's 10. He's in fifth grade. Um, Academically, he's very motivated. He's been really easy. Esther's homeschooling the kids. And he's been really easy to homeschool because he's curious. He's motivated. He wants to learn. When it comes to sports and athletics, he's not quite as uh, outgoing, not quite as gifted maybe in that way. Um, But his younger sister, Ezri, our second born, makes up for it. She's eight years old and um, not so much into academics, but very, uh, very gifted when it comes to sports and wants to be running around outside and doing active things. When Esther was first trying to teach her to read, she was like, Mom, this doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to do this. It's just hard, and I don't see the benefit. And Esther asked her, I was like, well, don't you want to learn how to read? Don't you want to know what that says? And she's like, no, if I want to know what that says, then I'll ask Benjamin, because Benjamin knows how to read. <laughs> um, she's since kind of uh, come to the light and has come to enjoy reading and and is doing much better in her reading. Our third born is Kezia. She's five years old. She's just starting kindergarten, and she's our drama queen and little princess. She likes to dress up and put a tiara in her hair and dance around and pretend the world is made of roses and, I don't know, I'm not a little girl, so I can't say. But she's also our drama queen. If she falls down and there's just even a tiny scuff on her knee, then the world is coming to an end, and I'm sure the sky is falling as well. Ethan is our last born. He'll be three in December. Um, He's very energetic. He's recently discovered a love for all things trucks. He likes cars, trucks, tractors. Our other kids want to go to bed with a stuffed animal. He wants to go to bed with his monster truck, and He puts it under his arm and falls asleep with his monster truck. He's also very mischievous and has figured out that he can irritate his older sisters. He's the youngest, but he has a way of irritating his sisters who are quite a bit older than him by pinching them, pulling their hair, and just 
generally being very mischievous, and he gets a lot of enjoyment out of it. So please pray for him that he wouldn't turn out like I am, and that God would get a hold of his life, and Esther and I would have wisdom in dealing with us. So we moved. We felt God's calling us to missions. We moved to Nairobi, Kenya in 2011. Nairobi is the capital of Kenya. It's a modern city. It has skyscrapers, paved roads. Um, We have running water, which is on most of the time. We have electricity, which is also on most of the time. We're not living in the huts with thatched roofs. Um, We live in a very nice house. There's a population of about 6.5 million people in the city in a very small area. So the the people density is very high. One of the reasons they can get such high density is there's a bunch of slums throughout the city. One of the largest slums, Kibera, in all of Africa. So all of Africa is found in Nairobi. We're serving with Africa Inland Mission, AIM. AIM was founded in 1895 by Peter Cameron Scott. He packed his belongings, went to Kenya, and two years later he died from malaria. But his vision to establish Christ-centered churches amongst all African people didn't die with him when he died. And we are now a thousand missionaries strong in AIM, um, sent from all over the world and working currently in about 14 African countries. We only work within the continent of Africa. We don't work anywhere else. Within AIM, Esther and I work for AIMAIR. Um, AIMAIR is the mission's aviation program. Um, Our motto is to serve those who serve. So our primary focus and work responsibilities aren't isn't evangelism or church planting, but is to um, better equip those who are evangelizing, those who are church planting, those who are telling others about Christ to do that job as best they can. So our motto is to serve those who serve. We have six aircraft. We have three Cessna 206s. It's a small airplane, one pilot, five passengers. And we also have three Cessna 208 caravans. It's also a small airplane, one pilot, and 13 passengers. We have three bases. This is a picture of our base in Nairobi. It's our headquarters where we do all of our maintenance. We also have a base in northern Kenya, which is right on the border with South Sudan. We have a base in Uganda, um, also on the border with South Sudan. We do a lot of flying into South Sudan, so we've tried to locate the aircraft as close to where our users are flying as possible. All of the aircraft come back to Nairobi for their major maintenance and their inspections. So this is just a picture of the hangar we have two airplanes in right now. Um, Next picture. Here's a little better view. Um, And then in addition to the maintenance that takes place for the aircraft, the hangar is four stories and there's a lot of offices for the mission that take care of administrative functions for missionaries living in East Africa and Nairobi specifically. Our hangar staff, our uh, maintenance staff, is comprised of missionary volunteers like myself, and then we have paid Kenyan staff who supplement our maintenance team. There's a couple more of our Kenyan staff and a couple of our missionary staff doing work on the airplane. My responsibility is on the avionics specifically, so everything you see in the picture there is not avionics, but that's falls into my purview. Um, I think our other mechanics are scared of electricity, so if there's any uh, 
any wires going to something, then they want me to come and fix it. I have the biggest office or workspace in the hangar. I have 411 square feet. And you can see these windows here are the windows of my office looking down onto the hangar floor. In my office, we have I have workbenches. There we go. With lots of test equipment and technical stuff for fixing the avionics on the airplane. Here's a picture of a co-worker, Carl Crossman. He's replacing a component which costs less than a dollar to make this uh, radio airworthy again. If I was to send this particular radio to get fixed, it would have to go to Europe or to the U.S. The cost would be somewhere in the neighborhood of $1,500 by the time we pay for transport. And we're looking at six to eight weeks from the time I send it back to the time I get it back. So that's, if we can fix it in shop for less than a dollar and I can do it in the afternoon, that's the much preferred method. Um, there's a lot of technical documentation that goes along with trying to keep these going. And along with fixing them is everything that every uh, technician and engineer loves is paperwork. So <clears throat> Carl here is smiling because I said, I'm going to show this picture to my uh, supporting churches and uh you have to smile for the picture. Originally, he wasn't smiling because he doesn't enjoy paperwork any more than I do. But Carl is actually a missionary with Wycliffe, and he came out just briefly for four months so I could come back on my home assignment. He and his family actually got on a plane a couple hours ago and left Nairobi to head back to the U.S. So there won't be anyone until I arrive in Nairobi later or in the first week in December. So we need help. We need another avionics technician to work with me. We also need more pilots, mechanics, administrators. There's lots of different jobs that you could fulfill if you want to get plugged in in AMAIR. So I've talked about some of the maintenance of what my job is, but what about what AMAIR actually is? So we fly, obviously we fly transport people, um, missionaries, pastors, evangelists, church planners, those things. But we have uh, what we call an approved user list. And so to, for us to fly you on one of our airplanes, you have to meet the criteria somehow of AIM's greater goal of Christ-centered churches amongst all African people. So we don't fly for government agencies. We don't fly for NGOs, non-government organizations. We won't fly for the United Nations. We only fly for church organizations that are actively pursuing the same goal that we are. So in addition to flying people, we'll transport mail for missionaries, we'll transport freight. A couple of years ago, um, the the flight staff and the maintenance staff got together, kind of had a day off and a barbecue and, by a training strip, and the the pilots challenged the mechanics to see if we could drop a dozen eggs out of the airplane without breaking them. The mechanics accepted the challenge, and we all packaged up um, eggs, just one egg at a time, not a whole like carton of a dozen. And then the pilots have actually they practice dropping like mail and stuff out of the airplane, so they don't have to land at the station to get the missionaries something that they need. And so the pilots flew the plane about a hundred feet off the ground in about ninety miles an hour, and then they dropped our package. It had to go through a window that's it's kind of long, but maybe this wide, so our package had to fit through there. And we dropped a dozen eggs out of the airplane. And I'm proud to tell you that the maintenance team won and we successfully dropped a dozen eggs out of the airplane and didn't break any of them. 
So in addition to fun things like that, we also do medical evacuations for people that have an urgent need to get to the hospital. And then if missionaries find themselves in a situation that isn't safe, we'll come and evacuate them from where they're, whatever situation they might find themselves in. So in closing, um, I st- opened up my presentation with a picture of Gunner when he was a SEAL instructor. And then another one is a pastor. And even when Gunner was a SEAL instructor, he was still running the race that God had set before him, being an example to those that were in his sphere of influence, in his sphere of influence, letting them know about Jesus Christ. And God has moved and directed Gunner in a different path from the SEAL teams, but he's still performing the work as a pastor, telling people about Jesus Christ and shepherding this group of believers here. So my challenge to you this morning, it's not the work you're doing. The work you're doing isn't the race that you're running. It's how you're doing that work for Jesus Christ is the results of that race. So my challenge this morning is, are you being faithful in that work in proclaiming Jesus Christ wherever you find yourself, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, here, now, today, not five years from now, ten years from now. I hope to do this later on in my life. But here, now, how are you serving Christ? How are you involved in the body of Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your love for us. Lord, I thank you for the example when you came to earth and you died on the cross and paid a debt that we couldn't hope to pay. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live um, and to run the race that you set before us in a manner that honor and glorifies you. May we glorify you with our lives. Lord, I thank you for the food that's being prepared for us. Um, pray, Lord, that you would bless to our bodies. Just bless our time of fellowship after the service. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.